Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision making. I'm your host, John Hu, growth equity investor at Norwest Venture Partners and former investment banker Goldman Sachs. So the startup ecosystem has a major diversity problem. As the global consumer base has increasingly diversified and shifted, the operators and investors building new products for that consumer base still very much so look and think in the same ways they did 20 years ago. So much so that of the thousands of VC partners out there, only 18% are female. And of the VC-backed founders out there, only 9% are female. And when you cut the statistics by race, the picture gets even more grim. Only 1% of venture-backed founders are black and 2% are Latino. So that is why I am very excited to announce Henri-Pierre Jacques and Jared Tingle as today's podcast guests. Now, Henri and Jared are two of the co-founders of Harlem Capital, which is the first early-stage fund solely dedicated to investing in founders of diverse backgrounds. So as hyper-successful startups like Glossier or Rent the Runway and Briogeo have revolutionized their respective niches of diversity, it's really no surprise that firms like KKR and TPG have partnered up with the Harlem Capital team as they seek to bridge the diversity gap. So in today's podcast, Henri, Jared, and I discuss how diversity actually leads to better business results in today's globalizing world, in addition to laying out actionable strategies for how companies and firms can up their diversity metrics. We also share a few lessons learned for any entrepreneurial investors on how to go about raising a fund. And lastly, share the consistent patterns and themes that lead to successful diversity initiatives. So why don't we get started? Hey guys, how's it going? Good. How's it going? Doing great. Thanks for taking some time today. So Henri and Jared, why don't we start with a little bit of background on you prior to starting Harlem Capital? Sounds good. So my name is Henri Pierre-Jacques. I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan, first-generation Haitian-American. I went to Northwestern University in Chicago, did a few years investment banking, gaming side for casinos at Bank of America, then did a few years of middle market private equity at ICB Partners, where I worked with Jared. I graduated from Harvard Business School two months ago, was with Jared there as well, and worked in Harlem Capital full-time since. And I'm Jared Tingle. I grew up in New Jersey, near Philadelphia. I went to Wharton for undergrad, studied finance there. Then I went on to work at Barclays Investment Bank and the tech media telecom group for a few years. Then, as I already mentioned, we worked at ICB Partners together. So that was a really good experience. We also were at HBS at the same time and happened to be roommates. So excited to be out of school and working on Harlem Capital full time. Yeah. So before we dive into Harlem Capital, why don't we paint a picture for the audience of just the general dearth of diversity within venture capital and private equity investing, as well as startups? Would love for you guys to paint that picture for the audience here. Sure. So I can kind of eat with that, but the stats are pretty dire. So on a funding basis, out of the $130 plus billion that went into VC in 2018, only about 3% went to women solo-led companies. And if you include minorities, that number probably jumps up to 3% is our estimate between PitchBook and our own research. But very, very underfunded, given that women minorities make up about 70% of the population. If you expand that to women co-led companies, the numbers are a little bit better, about 12%. But that's still pretty dire if you think about how many companies get funded and, and how significant that delta is. Got it. Andre, did you want to add anything there? 
Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's the founder side on the GP side. I mean, so we put out a report last year that showed 200 Black and Latinos who worked in venture capital. About 100 of the people in venture capital were partners or general partners, and over half of those partners had started their own firms. And so I think it's pretty clear it's very hard to move up as a person of color at VC firms to the partner level. If you look outside of venture capital, less than 1% of all global assets are managed by women or minorities. So I think another thing that we saw was there's a lack of diverse investors and there's a lot of studies that show people often invest in who they know. A professor at HBS, Professor Gompers, looked at a study which showed 42,000 founders and 14,000 venture capitalists over 20 years. And there was almost a one-to-one correlation between the race and gender of the VC investors to the race and gender of the VC batch founders. Wow, that's a really strong statistic and makes me think of some other stats out there, like how less than 10% of venture-backed founders are female, and then less than 3% of venture-backed founders are Black or Latino, which, of course, should push us to ask ourselves the question of why exactly that disparity is so drastic. So curious for you guys, why do you think this disparity still persists? See, I can start here. I think it's a few things. So Anarik's alluded to the lack of diverse investors, and we think that is huge. Like it cannot be overstated how significant that is. So that's one thing we've identified. I think the second thing is that just early stage investing, no matter how good or how adept you are at it, it still has a lot of subjective points. So it's not like private equity or hedge fund where you can look at 10 years of financial data and kind of extrapolate from there. You're really going off of potential, the background of the founder, team dynamics, you know, grit, things like that, that are just tougher to assess. And if you have biases or people that look like you, sound like you, went to the same schools or in the same clubs, et cetera, we think that bias is working against women and minorities. And the last thing, um, and it's funny because it's called pattern recognition, but given the parallel dynamics in VC, where a few companies generate the lion's share of your returns, there is incentive to pattern recognize on who has been successful previously. And so, again, if only, you know, people that look a certain way and live in a certain area are getting the funding and those are people that get positioned to exit an IPO, then that is going to cascade where women or minorities who haven't had that opportunity don't look like those people. And as a result, don't get the shot to to get real capital and downstream capital into their businesses. Yeah, I mean, I think besides just like the lack of Diverse investors is also the background. So Richard Kirby, who's a GP at um, Equal Ventures, found a study that said 40% of venture capitalists went to Harvard or Stanford undergrad or business school. Uh, and so, you know, obviously we, we went to Harvard as well. And there's a number of reasons why we decided to do that. Um, but when, when two schools dominate over 40% of the VC investors, you know, there's a reason why Harvard and Stanford founders are oftentimes the most backed founders in venture capital, you know not going to say people from Harvard and Stanford are smart because we went there, but there's a lot of biases where people are given in the runway to make mistakes and become the founders that have the unicorns. And I just fundamentally don't believe that only Harvard and Stanford founders are the ones that deserve that capital to get to the next level. Uh, and so the schools where you're from, geographies, you know, there's a number of other biases that are outside of just the race and gender of the investors that, that goes into the bias as well. Yeah, there's so many embedded heuristics that I think investors use to short circuit their decision making that are these just very clear biases that aren't serving them well. And one thing, though, that I'd love to hear you guys' perspective on is this chicken and egg problem, where we're clearly highlighting the issue that 
for lack of a better term, white male VCs continue to fund white male founders or Asian male VCs continue to fund Asian male founders. How do you break that cycle, right? How does a firm that currently is looking to be diverse is realizing that, hey, we're missing the glossiers of the world because we're all men and we don't understand that pain point. How do we solve that chicken and egg problem? That's just like, where do we even start? So I mean, I think the first thing is you have to have firms like Harlem Capital, which is why we exist. And obviously, a large portion of the capital is going to go to the firms at the top, the Sequoias and the age of the world. So even if we're helping to start the early stage, you're going to need the larger firms eventually to step in. But I think as you see more and more VC lead to later stage rounds, people are writing bigger checks and raising bigger funds. You're going to need some people to really take that bet early on on these founders. And hopefully if they can scale their businesses and get to a point, then the people at Series A and Series B will write the checks and, and help the companies get to the next stage. But I think the early stage, which is why so many diversity-focused fund, female founders fund, BBG, et cetera, are kind of at the seed in Series A because you need to at least start the pipeline. Uh, and once the pipeline gets started, then you can hopefully rely on some of the bigger players to make that. But I think you need some earlier firms to, to take that bet. Yeah, but kind of jumping in here, we do think this is the only way this problem gets solved. And we kind of cite the fact that VCs generally don't have a lot of headcount and they're, they're pretty good jobs, so they don't turn over that much. And there's no natural way them to really diversify their investment committee. So even if they bring on, you know, one, two, even three partners, that's not really going to change the culture of the IC. And in VC, you're seeing hundreds of thousands of deals a year. So I get that people can't spend a lot of time looking at every opportunity. And that's really why bias is coming to play. If you're just making snap judgments, you're going to lean one way or the other. Everyone does it. And if you aren't measuring or even tracking the ethnicity or gender of your founder pool, there's no way you're going to actually be aware of the patterns that you're doing. And that's why we intentionally have this mission and why we intentionally track all these metrics ourselves. That's great. So then now that we've highlighted the market pain points, why don't we dive into Harlem Capital's founding story? So how did you guys together at HBS come to found the fund? Yeah, so we started in December of 2015. So Jared and I and, and one of our other partners, Brandon, we met in 2011 during a national diversity program for college students trying to get into corporate America. So we've known each other for eight years at this point, all moved to New York after college, even though we went to different schools, all moved to Harlem. And Brandon and I actually were roommates for four years and we worked together in banking for two. And then Jared and I worked for two years in private equity together before business school. So we had a bunch of overlap professionally, socially, and we all were investors. We all had some extra money. And so we started out as an angel syndicate. So we were investing our money into startups, into small businesses and real estate. Eventually, we realized that we liked the venture asset class more. More of our deal flow was coming from the startup side. And so we pivoted to being a venture-only syndicate. And then from there, we realized that even though we didn't have a diverse mandate at that point, the majority of the deals we invested in with our own capital were into people of color and women. And that's kind of where we wanted to place our own money. And so we kind of, it wasn't, hey, we want to start a diversity-focused fund. It was a natural progression. And once we were a diversity-focused VC angel syndicate, that's when Jerry and I started Harvard Business School, got to school. Our angel track record was doing pretty well. We felt like we had built a solid brand in the marketplace, even though we'd been doing this part-time while we were working in private equity. And we were seeing hundreds of deals, even with us not really being on the ground. And so we knew there was a market. We knew diversity was everywhere in the ecosystem. People were talking about it. It was something that was important to us. And so once we got to school in January of our first year, that was kind of the decision point where we said, hey, let's try to raise a fund. And so the summer between our first and second year is when we launched kind of the formal fund that we have now. 
And when people say let's raise a fund, it's <laughs> a pretty high-level concept that abstracts away just about everything that goes into fundraising from LPs and recruiting a team and setting up a back office, right? So for anyone thinking about striking out on their own and quote-unquote just raising their own fund, can you prepare them for that process and what that entails? I think the fact that we had been doing it for a while helped because that was our kind of track record. You know, if you're our age and you're an associate or a principal at another firm, then a lot of LPs, limited partners, won't necessarily give you credit for the deals that you worked on because they weren't your deals. So people gave us credit for our deals because it was our money. We were investing in those deals. So I think having like our track record definitely helped. And even before we had decided we wanted to raise a fund, we started to put together a deck because we wanted to have a succinct place on like who we were for whatever opportunities for speaking gigs or just people were reaching out asking like, who are you as a firm? And we were getting a lot of inbounds. So we kind of began to build the deck. But really, we, you know, when we started to get a designer and put money and effort into the deck is once we decided we wanted to raise a fund. And once we got to that point, you know, we had never been through that process. So we first started with who are the people we know. So our old boss had raised four funds in, in private equity over a billion dollars of capital. He was one of our first investors and, you know, hearing his experience, getting his advice. He was our first board of advisor. He was our first big check, which was really important because if we worked for a fund manager who didn't want to invest in us, then we knew it would be tough for other people to invest in us, right? And so after getting him going to our banking, I got a couple of my directors and MDs from my banking group of B of A, some of my mentors who had been in finance, like that's where you kind of get your first few million. Now, unless you're really rich or come from rich networks, it's going to be really hard to raise kind of above a $10 million first-time fund if you don't get institutions or family offices or foundations. And that's like kind of the next step is after you get the people closest to you to hopefully give you 100 to 250K checks, then how do you begin to build out that network to get some of the larger checks, some of the one to $5 million checks? And that was kind of step two. But you want to prove to people that the people who know you are at least willing to back you. Otherwise, why would they back you? And Jared, any other lessons learned there? Sure, sure. So I think for anyone raising a fund, it is good to put yourself in the shoes of whoever's allocating capital. And three things that people tend to focus on or capital allocators tend to focus on are team, strategy, and track record. So team, it's, hey, why are you all uniquely qualified to be executing on this opportunity? How's your chemistry? Are you going to be in this for the long term? Strategy is more like, hey, are you doing something that's differentiated is it going to make money? Do I see return potential here? And then track record is demonstrate for me how you've been successful over time with this strategy. And every investor is going to weight these a little bit differently. I think the larger, more institutional investors are going to really look at track record. And there's really no way around that. We solved that problem um, on our own just by our angel track record, which helped a lot. But what we've seen other funds do is start an SPV and kind of do a deal by deal financing model or kind of warehouse deals that they eventually bring into the fund. And that can be a way to have people get comfort about your strategy and track record without actually having a pool capital. So that I think works pretty well. And as you guys go about pitching LPs and your differentiation, it's clear what your differentiating factor is right now in funding founders of diverse backgrounds. But at the same time, there needs to be results, right? So in pitching your LPs, what were some case studies or quantifiable examples that you used to show how diversity actually leads to better business results? Sure. So unfortunately, there's not a ton of data because so few founders of color and women have been getting funded. 
and the dollars, it's even worse. That's kind of where we started today. But I think this data is absolutely needed. And fortunately, there have been an uptick in funding since probably 2013 is what we were able to track. And now you're seeing high value companies like Glossier, Rent the One Way Zola on the women's side, and then Coppice and Cadre on the black male side, which does give us hope. And they're all doing pretty well. But we, noticing that there wasn't a lot of data out there, decided to kind of track our own data. And we actually found 150 companies led by Black or Latino founders that raise over a million dollars. So we answered the question, hey, does a pipeline exist? But to your question, we did see a study by BCG, which we were very happy to see because there's not much out there. It looked at 350 companies over about a five-year period. And they found that the women-led or co-led companies only raised about 40% of the funding as a male-exclusively-led companies. But over that time period, they generated 1.1 times the revenue. So again, it doesn't get into returns or anything like that because it's really early days since we've been getting capital as a group. But that does give us hope. And we really think that that leads to our process that women and minorities can generate higher risk-adjusted returns because that market is so underserved. That's great. And with that too, I think there has been some research on the public company side where there's more data, at least on stock performance. I don't know if you could speak towards that as well. Yeah, I don't know the exact details, but I do remember, I forget who did the study where they showed that diverse kind of C-suite level companies performed better over a decade. I don't remember their, their definition of diverse exactly, but I think it's, it's kind of been proven across a number of studies. It's also been proven for a number of fund allocators in terms of like consulting firms and such that a number of the diverse managers on average have been in the higher kind of quartile of their performance. So there's a lot of data out there on the public side. We've tried to prove it on the private side, actually, during Harvard Business School for one of our independent studies. But it was just really hard because for some reason, PitchBook and Crunchbase and CBI Insights don't track by race, but they track by gender. And so hopefully, eventually, one of these larger databases will actually ask for race and we begin to do studies at a much larger scale versus just us having to go to LinkedIn and search through articles to try to find founders of color who've raised capital, because that's really all you can do today, given the current ecosystem. I think also like the conversation, obviously, we believe on a risk adjusted basis that these founders are better, but like the conversation shouldn't be, you know, why are diverse founders better? Like, I don't think they need to be better. If you can have somebody return as much capital as any of the other founders, Zuckerbergs, Slacks, et cetera, you would invest in them all day. So I don't think the standard should be, hey, like Black, Latino women founders have to be better to receive capital. They have better performing businesses at the same stages of the seed in Series A in order to get capital. But I think when you get to parity, that won't be the conversation. That shouldn't be the case. I don't think you should have better risk-adjusted returns long-term and that people of color and women should receive funding for similar stage businesses. And if they execute, they execute. And if, if they fail, they fail, right? The majority of startups fail and that's fine. And so I think that part of the conversation is something that I'm hoping will shift and change. And it's a question that LPs ask us, which you know we believe, but oftentimes I think is frustrating that we need to prove that these founders are going to be better than their peers. But I think one important point though, is if you look at demographic trends in the U.S., the minority population is growing. And the issue is that because women and minorities haven't been getting capital historically, you can see how that can lead to really bad outcomes, given that these people are more and more percentage of the consumer pool. And so on the beauty side, for example, you have products that have been Eurocentric for decades. And now you have companies like Fenty or Beauty Bakery that are actually addressing this need before these consumers had to settle for products that weren't built for them. Even on the technology side, you're seeing studies, I think MIT Labs found a study where 
they were looking at AI and all the AI solutions that were identifying faces or pattern recognition were optimized for white males. They weren't able to identify women or people of color in, in general. And this actually can lead to really bad business outcomes as these people are getting captured and then the products aren't working for them either. And so the business case for anyone who is trying to address these markets is, hey, if you don't have people of color, women on your founding team or even in management at your business, then you're going to lose out in the long term if you're not addressing this growing population who has more and more wealth and, and can be consumers of your products. That hits the nail on the head. And I always think about that facial recognition example because it just highlights just how much bias is inherent in everything that we do and how diversity is really one of the only ways to root out that bias. So then, Henri, you had mentioned parity. So at some point, there will hopefully be parity, which I would guess personally, although I wish it was sooner, is at least 20 plus years out. So let's say parity is achieved and you guys continue to crush it. So by that time, 20 years out, you're on, let's say, fund number six, right? So how do you think about your differentiation as a fund now that diversity is no longer an issue? Yeah, I mean, I think 15 years for parity would be phenomenal. I think it will likely be longer just given how long it takes venture capital-backed firms to actually have exits. I think until you see a lot more exits on that side, you won't see the later stage capital flowing in as much. So my guess would kind of be 20 to 30 years is my perspective. I think even once you hit that level, if you help create a marketplace, then I think you still have a competitive advantage, right? I think there are reasons why the KKRs and TPGs of the world still are iconic in private equity. And there's a number of later stage private equity firms that do very similar things. And the same is true in the venture capital space. You know, obviously Kleiner's going through the tissues now, but there are other firms that have been around for a long time and it's a super competitive market, but they still have a huge brand advantage because they were some of the first players in the space. And so I think at that point, if the market is large enough and there's enough deals to be done, you only still need to fill your portfolio, right? Whatever that is, 20 to 30 companies in your portfolio. I think if we do our job and we are successful and we're on five funds in the next 15 to 20 years and we help to create you know, a multi-billion dollar asset class, diversity investing, then we're going to have a competitive advantage because we're going to be in the space longer. We're going to have more contacts. We're going to know more founders. If our founders are the ones who exit, they're going to be starting new businesses. They're going to be our LPs. They'll probably know the best minority founders, given, you know, there will be hiring a lot of people who probably are going to go start those companies, similar to the Googles and PayPals of the world. I mean, so I think you're just much better positioned. And at that point, it's just great because you're doing bigger deals. There's more deals to be done. There's more founders and women in the market system. But I'm not worried about us needing to kind of change our strategy. Obviously, you need to evolve and grow over time. And we fully don't believe even in the next two years, we're going to be the exact same firm. Like we're going to be you know, evolving and growing and changing. But I think the mission will always remain the same, but the execution and the strategy of how you actually execute that strategy may adjust based on the market. So thinking about all the legacy institutions in finance that aren't diverse, so all the private equity funds and VC funds and investment banks that pretty much all look and think the same, could you share some strategic and tactical advice on how they can bridge the diversity gap? Because I think at this point, most business leaders recognize the value of diversity, but in areas that are fairly homogenous, like the bubble of Silicon Valley that I live in, it's especially difficult to find the talent to address the diversity void. So I'll start with this one. I think you need to start by looking in different places. First and foremost, it's helpful to have diverse teams. So to the extent they can hire lateral folks, not just the junior level, but at the senior level, 
that can help influence decision-making, I think that would be great. There's a whole host of GPs or even mid-levels at VC firms now that would love the opportunity to work at a bigger firm. And so I think as long as you're putting your net out wide, you'll be able to find these folks. Also, definitely use social media. So Women and Minorities over-index on social media. That's been a big strategy for us. We have four to 25,000 followers across our various platforms, but Women and Minorities over-index on social media. So this is a great way to find new founders that are really promising. So whether it's Instagram or LinkedIn or Twitter, this could be great ways. Whenever you see an article or profile on a certain founder, sending them a note can be good. And I think attending a different event. So if you just stay in your bubble and you attend events that you know have been around for a long time and there's barriers to entry, it may be tougher to find minority or women founders. But if you're spending time in New York and you're looking at the different accelerators and different demo days that are addressing these markets, you will potentially be able to find deal flow that fits this. You can also work with diversity-focused funds. I know we, Female Founders Fund, BBG, are probably all very happy to share deals with the big firms of the world. And so that can be really good, just engaging with firms that are already out here actually focused on this market. Yeah, I mean, I think from like a hiring perspective, like you just need to create a culture where people believe they can actually move up. I think now it's called diversity and inclusion and, and retention is important. And so what is that retention like? I think an easy way is to have people of color, women at the top where people can actually see themselves. I don't want to be an associate at your firm and the only black person in your firm for 10 to 15 years before I'm partner. That's just not interesting anymore, particularly in a world where there's so much diversity. And so I think a lot of people are relying on like, oh, we're going to hire some associates and that's just not going to work. And it takes them so long and the partners are staying at these firms longer, particularly as it takes exits longer. So people are waiting for the carry and they're waiting for exits to happen. And so there's just, you know, you have people being at firms longer and less rotation at the top. And so you need to find ways to really, like Jared said, put people up at the top. And I think from an investing standpoint, you need to make yourself accessible. Like 50% of our deal flow comes directly from founders, either via email or via LinkedIn, because we have all of our emails on our website. We're super open on LinkedIn. We actually check our messages and two of our 12 deals that we've done have been through LinkedIn messages. Right. And so in this whole network scheme where people rely on, you know, I know a lot of firms say, if you can't get in touch with me, then you're not a founder I want to back. I just think that's a very flawed methodology. And that's not a way that you're going to lead to diversity. And, you know, we're a small firm. So if you're a larger firm and you have an executive assistant, you know, create an email that they can filter through and see and people can at least reach you and have access to you without having to figure out your email or get somebody to introduce them. And so I just don't think that's a way that you're going to get diverse founders. And obviously, you know, still the majority of our deals that we get executed are still done through kind of our network and outbound. But we still have done 20 to 25% of our deals through inbound deals that founders have just reached out to us. And so we'll continue to focus on that and make sure that we're accessible to the community and we'll give advice to founders that we pass on that we think are still, you know, going to be really successful founders, but it's not a fit right now, but we want to provide real feedback because oftentimes, like people will literally respond to us like, thank you for telling me no. And it's strange for us because we've never worked at venture capital firms. So we actually have no idea how VC firms work. But like coming from private equity, it's, it's pretty standard to give bankers or the management team your thoughts and responses. So that was just something that we've always done. Or like if we get later stage in a deal where we kind of, you know, we have four stages. So if we get to stage three or stage four, then we'll usually call the founder and give them like a 15 minute call on like, hey, thanks for spending time with us. This is the reason we pass. And oftentimes a lot of those founders become some of our best advocates. And so it really shocked me at first that like saying no could be such a positive thing and giving people 
explanations to why we pass, which often for minority and women founders is the case. They don't get the back channels from VC firms to understand what's wrong and they keep making those same mistakes in the next meeting. And so they're just super appreciative of that. And then they become advocates for you, even though you didn't invest, which is great for us. And hopefully we'll make them better founders and be able to get capital from the next investor. Yeah, that's a wonderful summary that hits the nail on the head again. And I think number one is definitely accessibility. But I think number two around transparent and candid feedback is really key. I think oftentimes investors rely on simple truisms to avoid having to give feedback on why they're passing. And they'll just say, you know, we'd love to see more traction or something soft like that. So I'm really glad that you guys are giving honest and helpful feedback, which I'd imagine leads to better business results in general. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> who knew that being a nice and genuine human being could actually be helpful in business? But I digress. So moving to the last part of the podcast here, guys, which centers around the title of the podcast, Pattern Recognition. What are some consistent patterns or themes you see across successful diversity initiatives? Hmm. Interesting question. I mean, I think the patterns that we've seen, I don't know if it's like successful initiative, but it's just patterns that we're realizing from diverse founders is oftentimes these founders have been in business longer. And so you're talking two to three years before these founders are raising their seed round. Oftentimes they have more revenue, as Jared kind of mentioned on the gender side. Oftentimes they have a stronger customer base because they weren't able to do the friends and family round. And so they had to have revenue in order to sustain the business because they didn't have anybody to give them money. And then there's that there's that balance of, you know, some VC investors believe if you're getting revenue too early, you're not focused on the customer and the growth, right? And other investors now that we're kind of getting into this whole profitability discussion with all these companies like Lyft and Uber who aren't profitable, some VC investors are now shifting to like, we'd rather see you be profitable sooner versus before it was all about growth. So there's that balance, I think, depending on the investors we're talking to they'll get dinged because they had to have slower growth in order to get revenue and be profitable, even to just run the business for one to two years before they could raise a seed round because they had no family and friends. And so I think investors who can understand that dynamic, you know, there was an interesting report on the Medium post that this guy looked at 20 years of unicorns. You know, one thing he found was that 60% of those of the unicorns the past 20 years had got funding from a tier one VC within the first year of starting the business. And so that's a pretty starking, startling fact when you're looking at companies that have been around for two, three years, it may concern you in terms of like, does the founder have less longevity? Is the business, you know, it's great that you have a half million of revenue at the seed stage, but it's a slower growth business. But like, if you can really understand is if you're focused on diversity, the dynamics that is required for diverse founders to get to that point, and maybe it doesn't match the past pattern recognitions of what those unicorns were, um, that I think you'll be more open, have better opportunities in this market. Yeah. And I'll jump in here. I think back to your original question about diversity initiatives, it's really tough to talk about this on the VC side just because, again, it's early days. But I think on the hiring side, as we think about at least big financial firms in New York, as we've been you know, around or know pretty well, the ones that are able to, to diversify really just believe that this is important to do. And it's not just about charity or morality. It's also for good business. And I think when it's kind of weaved into the culture of the firm, you just have better outcomes. And that's what we've seen. And it also requires patience. So you can't just say, hey, we hired one class. It didn't work out. Let's give up on it. It actually takes concerted effort. And it actually requires rethinking everything you're doing that may facilitate bias or hinder true inclusion. But I think aside from just believing in it, it's also very important to measure 
and it's very hard to manage if you can't measure. And some people are just unwilling to measure their stats because either they feel like it'll make them look bad or whatever, but there's no way to change otherwise. And we do want to give credit to First Round Capital, who we've been getting close to over time. And they actually tracked 10 years of data where they looked at a whole bunch of different metrics, but actually tracked by gender. And they found that their female founders over that 10-year period did outperform. So I think aside from you know measuring, also showing to the market what you find when it's relevant can be very helpful in kind of supercharging these initiatives and helping others kind of buy in that are slower moving. That's wonderful. I love that statistic. I think for me, one thing that I've seen as well, and, and you guys alluded to it as well, is this has to be top down. It has to be bottoms up at the same time. The senior leadership has to be fully bought into a diversity initiative and they have to genuinely care and, and be genuinely invested in that initiative for it to work out whatsoever or else it's kind of just, you know, all that talk, but no backup. So then on a more personal level for you guys, are there any sort of mental models or patterns that you guys apply in your own personal decision making? Yeah, I mean, I think we track data religiously. And every quarter we do deal reviews and we look at, you know, what are our biases? I think you would be mistaken to believe if you have a diverse team, you still don't have biases, right? And so we are African-American men, so we don't have women on our team. We just hired our first senior associate who's a woman, so that's going to help. But obviously, we don't have women partners. And so do we have biases against our women founders? And what can we do to adapt that? What does the data show? We're African-Americans, but we were done washing, went to Harvard Business School. We don't represent the majority of the country uh, for people of color. How do we ensure that you know we're not leveraging our networks where we're just investing and promoting people of color who are at Harvard Business School? That's not going to change uh, the legacy long term, right? So we're super focused on that. We're thinking about ways, which is why we use social media, because that's a way for us as a small firm to reach people, which is why we've invested in Columbus, Baltimore, Atlanta, San Diego, LA, Chicago, et cetera, because there's, there's just no other way that we'd be able to get outside of our networks and get to those places on a smaller micro fund. You just only have so much time and expenses. And so we're very conscious that we look at our data every quarter to figure out where our biases, we track our past reasons, we track the race, gender, industry, who sources the deal. And then like, do we have biases from, are we passing on more people who are inbound versus outbound, even if the deals are at similar stages? You know, are we just assuming because somebody in our network told us that this is a better business, even though it may not be? And so I think, you know, that's something... For us, data drives decisions. And so we like to use data to even implement against our biases as diverse GPs. Yep. And I think we just try to minimize the gut feel. There's always going to be a gut feel in VC. Ari's alluding to, we love tracking data, but we also have scorecards that we look at. So as we're assessing the business, the market opportunity, the financials, the team, et cetera, we try to rate everything. And we know in isolation, one-off, it may not be that valuable, but as you start aggregating data over time, we'll start seeing, hey, what do we think when we invested and how did that turn out? And then we'll be able to kind of reinform and adjust our decisions over time. And I guess one thing that's not necessarily personal decision-making, but is critical to us is by really having a growth mindset and a culture of feedback. So we have semi-annual meetings where we literally dig into each other and just try to capture everything that we think people could improve upon. And we've seen and been in organizations where that's not encouraged and people are just doing the same things wrong over and over again that may not rise to the occasion of being worth telling them in the moment, but actually over time can actually start to harm them. And so we think that on top of the focus on data will just make us better investors and better people to work with over time. 
That's great. So then last question for you here. It's around content. So have there been any books, shows, or movies that have changed your perspective and why? Yeah, I mean, so I, I don't read that many books. I don't have time. I have A&B. <laughs> I, read, I read a lot of articles. I watch a lot of TV. and I read a lot of legal documents and pitch decks. I mean, I think, honestly, the Medium post I mentioned that looked at all the unicorns the past 20 years, that really, to me, just showed how many patterns there are in this space. Like 50% of the founders who are unicorns were two-time founders. 50% of the founders who are unicorns had been 10 years out of school, right? So this whole kind of fallacy that founders are young and, and starting out of college is really not true oftentimes. The case for the people who are most experienced and get to that next level. And so I really like that data just kind of showed me and made me reflect on what are the things that I should be focused on as an investor. And obviously, we're investing in underrepresented founders. And so what's that balance of using historical data and using past historical successes versus what I'm focused on as an investor, where I'm trying to basically change the mode? Is it really made me take a step back to think about my decision-making process and what are the things I'm going to look for? And what's that balance of understanding what has kind of worked versus what I think will work in the future? And I'll talk about a show. So our venture partner, John Henry, had a show on Viceland called Hustle. He was the host. It was eight episodes earlier this year, and it really trailed him consulting women and minority business owners or small business owners in New York City. And it was incredible. I mean, obviously, work with him, we respect him a lot, and seeing him in action was great. But I think what really changed my perspective is just the response from the audience and the viewers. And I mean, we're living it, so we don't think about it as much, but there's so few visual examples, representation of young people of color or even women just doing business. And I didn't realize how powerful that was, just literally seeing yourself or seeing someone who cares about you in the spotlight actually makes a huge difference. And I think we're scratching the surface, but there's going to be a whole wave of people, young people that are really empowered by the work that we're doing and just being very clear and very visible, that'll say, hey, before you may have only thought you can do these very rigid careers or sports or entertainment, things where you actually see people of color shining. But hey, let's actually talk about the people that are on the ground, starting their own firms, doing something entrepreneurial. And it's not going to be glamorous all the time. It's going to be hard. But literally just seeing yourself and be able to resonate with someone who looks like you can't be understated. That it cannot at all. I mean, what you guys are doing is so inspiring. And even just anecdotally from a personal level, to some degree, I spent the first 20 something years of my life having never seen anyone that looked like me on any TV or on any movie, at least in an admirable capacity. So thinking about the career empowerment that would come with saying, look, Jared and Henri are literally starting a fund and crushing it and making millions and building better businesses and building a better world is so inspiring. And I really want to commend you guys on going on this journey and i'm really excited to see where things go so thank you guys for joining the show appreciate it thank you once again a big thank you to Henri and jared for joining us today if you're a founder of a diverse background or looking to improve the diversity of your own institution i've included Henri and jared's contact info alongside the show notes on the podcast website at patternrecognitionpod.com We've got a whole host of diverse founders joining the show in the coming weeks, many of whom I've highlighted on Twitter in order to get your questions so that I can give you a shout out during those interviews. You can tweet at me at John Heasy. That's J-O-H-N-H-E-E-Z-Y. So thank you all for tuning in and I'll talk to you next week.